0: Here now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever uh, one of my favorite books as a child was the book by Wilson Rawls, Where the Red Fern Grows. I read it many times growing up. It's the story of a little boy named Billy who grows up in the Ozarks and wants to become a, a raccoon hunter. And so to be a raccoon hunter, he needs raccoon hunting dogs, redbone hounds to be specific. And he doesn't have money for them, so at the beginning he scrimps and saves and does extra odd jobs to try to save up enough money to order these dogs, and finally he has enough money, finally the day comes when these dogs arrive, he falls in love with them, names them Old Dan and Little Ann, but then he faces a dilemma, how does he train dogs to hunt raccoons? when he has no raccoon skin or fur, whatever you would call it, to train them with. How do they follow the scent of a raccoon if he doesn't have anything to train them with to, learn, to teach them to follow the scent of a raccoon? Well, he asks for advice and someone tells him, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to bore a hole in a log, big enough for a raccoon to get his, his paw in there, and put inside that hole a, a very bright, shiny piece of metal. And then the raccoon will be able to reach in and grab it, but then that hole that you've bored has to be small enough so when the raccoon tries to pull his paw out, he can't get both his paw and the bright shiny object out at the same time. And Billy says, well, doesn't the raccoon just have to let it go, and he'll be free and live? And uh, the person who's giving him this advice says, well, yes, you'd think so. Uh, but in fact, these creatures are not very smart, and they are very determined to get whichever, get, the, get their hands on and keep whatever bright, shiny objects that they find. And sure enough, the next day after setting up this trap, there was a raccoon, mad as a hornet, uh, so frustrated because he would not let go of that bright, shiny object. Now, I, I may have told that story here as an illustration before, but it seems so apt to tell again as we enter the Sermon on the Mount. Because in this sermon, Jesus is teaching us about how to let go of the bright, shiny objects that we spend all of our lives pursuing. That if we would just let these things go, Jesus says, we could have life in the kingdom of heaven. But it's so hard. Even if we will lose our lives and even if we will not have the life abundantly that jesus gives us we can be so determined to hold on to the things that we prize in this world the most which is why jesus toward the end of this great sermon on the mount in chapter 7 the sermon on the mount runs from chapter 5 through chapter 7 in matthew 7 14 jesus says for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few that's a warning that all of us have to pay attention to. Why is the gate so narrow? Why is the way so hard? Why do so few people find the way to life in Jesus Christ? And it's because we must give up the things that we hold most dear to follow Jesus. We must give up the things that give us comfort, the things that give us identity, the things that give us purpose in this world in order to order our lives after the kingdom of heaven that Jesus preaches about here. Now, as we start our series on this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with these Beatitudes, which are rightfully famous. These are beautiful descriptions of the kingdom of heaven. But our big idea as we get into what Jesus is getting at is this, blessed are the repentant who resemble God. Blessed are the repentant who resemble God. So three parts to our study of the Beatitudes this morning the blessedness of the kingdom, the blessedness of the kingdom. Then second, the blessedness of repentance, the blessedness of repentance. And then third, the blessedness of resemblance, the blessedness of resemblance. So let's start with the blessedness of the kingdom in verses one and two, the introduction to these beatitudes. As we orient ourselves to these beatitudes, there are probably three introductory issues that we need to touch upon. The first issue has to do with the summary that Jesus gave us in the latter half of the previous section, or or the previous chapter, chapter 4, where we saw the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That forms a summary overview, a snapshot summary of Jesus' ministry, that now we are going to see an expansion upon that. So in chapter 4, verse 17, we saw a snapshot summary of Jesus' public preaching. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a snapshot summary of Jesus' preaching. And now we're going to see that snapshot expanded into a full sermon. This is Sermon on the Mount over chapters 5 through 7. In the same way, we see a snapshot summary overview of Jesus' healings. In verse 24, for example, we read about how people from all over the area brought all the sick, those oppressed by various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them a snapshot overview summary. Well, right after we finish our expansion of the preaching of Jesus in in chapters 5 through 7, well, then chapters 8 and 9 will give us an expanded form of the healings where we're going to read individual narratives stacked right one on top of another about the individual people whom Jesus heals in all of these ways. We see the snapshot, and now we see the expansion. That's going to be very important as we understand what precisely Jesus is getting at in these Beatitudes. That's the first introductory issue. The second introductory issue has to do with the distinction that Jesus, again, introduced in the previous chapter, but now it's going to start to take a little bit more shape. The distinction between the crowds on the one hand and Jesus' disciples on the other hand. We saw Jesus call His disciples in verses 18 through 20 of chapter, or 22 of chapter 4. Uh, Jesus called Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and then James and John to follow Him as His disciples. And then in verse 25 of chapter 4, we saw how great crowds ended up following him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Well, right away in the very next verse, chapter 5, verse 1, we read that seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus withdraws from the crowds as a whole and departs up to the mountain where he sits down to teach and his disciples come to him. Jesus is leaving behind the crowds for now to give intentional focus teaching to his disciples for the moment. However, don't make a mistake here. The crowds will follow. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the very last verse, if this is the first verse where we read the distinction where Jesus leaves the crowds to go to the disciples by the last verse of the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 7, verse 48, we will read, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who held authority and not as the scribe. So Jesus begins to teach the disciples, but the crowds gather to listen in on this teaching. That's the second introductory issue. The third introductory issue has to do with the Old Testament background of what's happening here. We must read this in the light of the Old Testament. And Matthew gives us a, a key principle that we can't afford to miss although we might read over it if we're not careful it's in verse one seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain and there's a reason this is called the sermon on the mount because jesus is teaching on a mountain but this isn't just to sort of help us to geographically locate where jesus is when this happens this is given to remind us of another great prophet of god who spoke and taught god's people from a mountain Jesus here is presented by Matthew as a new Moses. Just as Moses went up Mount Sinai to gain the law of God, to give the instruction and teaching of God to God's people, so here Jesus teaches his people on the mountain. Now what we are going to see is Jesus doesn't say, away with the law of the Old Testament. I'm going to give you something brand new. Instead he says, I've not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it, every bit of it. And what we see Jesus here is not like Moses, who is simply a servant in the household of God, simply relaying the word to God's people. Jesus comes to give an authoritative interpretation to what God requires of us as his people. That's the Old Testament background. We are seeing here Jesus as the new Moses teaching and instructing his people. And so in verse 2, we read, "...and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying..." Now, three times we read about Jesus' speeching, or speaking, his speech acts, that he opened his mouth, and he taught them, and he was saying. That's redundant. It's repeated over and over again. You don't need to say it that many ways. What Matthew is doing here, and Matthew is not a person who wastes words. He's doing this to get at the solemnity and the seriousness and the significance of what we are about to hear. This is the authoritative teaching on the nature of the kingdom of heaven the wise way of living in God's kingdom. Now, very often, uh, people study the final words of important people. Now, for example, if you've ever sat with a loved one on their deathbed, the very last words that you hear your loved one speak will be words that you will carry with you for the rest of your life. Those are the last things you hear from someone you loved very much. Or sometimes you will... Hear the uh, They'll give an announcement to hear the final lecture of a professor who's taught in a particular area for a long time, or the final sermon of a pastor who's retiring from a long ministry in a certain place. We often focus on the end, the last word, the final word that someone gives. But there are sometimes places where we focus on the first word. And especially when we have access to the first words, sometimes we don't know later that someone is going to be important, and so no one thought to capture the first words of someone in their ministry or their work or whatever. Uh, But when we do know something about someone's first words, we see the way that those first words sometimes set the tone for everything that's going to happen. So for example... Um, some of you, when we were doing the uh, Building on a Firm Foundation campaign, some of you reminded me that, or were reminded of the first sermon that was preached by Harvest when we moved into this building um, nearly 20 years ago. Um, it was by my predecessor, Pastor Alan Mallory, and the sermon text that day was Isaiah 54, verse 2 enlarge the place of your tent. The idea was that, you know, we started as a church 25 years ago, over 25 years ago now. It's just a, a small group of people, but God enlarged the tents. and uh, Harvest was able to eventually move into a, a smaller building where there was great and fruitful ministry there, and God enlarged the places of our tents, and he was able to bring us into a new and larger facility. And um, Pastor Mallory preached, you know, our work isn't done. We didn't come here to settle and to finish what we were doing. But to continue on, to continue bearing witness to Jesus Christ, and that set the tone for harvest over these next 20 years, nearly. Well, here what Jesus is doing is to set the tone, to set the tone for his preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. This is going to set the tone for all of Jesus's ministry. And so before we enter into these Beatitudes, it's worth uh, making three structural observations about what Jesus does in this first section, these Beatitudes. The first is that notice how Jesus structures this. Blessed are those who, that's the criteria, and then there's a promise. The blessedness of a certain class of people, and then the promise of why these people are in fact blessed. Now this is picking up on Old Testament language, especially the language, language of the Psalms. If you think about the very first words of the Psalms, what sets the tone for the rest of the Psalter, Psalm 1 1, verse 1, this is how the Psalms begin. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That sets the tone for the rest of the Psalter. This blessedness, uh, R.T. France, commentator R.T. France says, is a commendation or congratulations for a good situation. However, as we're going to see, these are not always externally um, recognized good situations. You wouldn't necessarily, by outward appearances, look at these people and say, those people are blessed. But that's why we need not just the criteria, not just the blessed are these people. It's not obvious. But then Jesus has to give us the gospel promise, the word of why such a situation is is so blessed. That's the first issue, the structure. Blessed are those, that's the criteria, and then the gospel promise that's attached to it. The second is that we should notice that Jesus isn't just listing things off the top of his head, and he gets to a top 10, or gets to eight of them, and, and finishes. There's a very clear structure to what Jesus is doing, and you can see the structure in two ways. The first way is you can see that the Beatitudes begin and end on the same point. The gospel promise in the very first beatitude in verse 3 and the very last beatitude in verse 8 are the same. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are connected. These are not meant to, you have three of them, maybe I have two of them, and someone else has seven of them. All Christians are supposed to have all of these promises, as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his excellent commentary on on the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. But what's happening here is that there is also a very clear structure. These come full circle, and in this full circle, the third and final aspect of, of what we're going to look at in structural observations has to do with the two very clear sections here. Now, The first four Beatitudes deal with our blessedness in relation to God, and that's characterized by repentance, as we're going to see. But the last four deal with our blessedness in relation to others and our interactions with other people in the kingdom of heaven. And that blessedness is going to be marked by the resemblance that we bear toward God. So we see blessedness in our repentance toward God and the blessedness of our resemblance of God in our relationships with others. So with those three initial structural observations in mind, Uh, Let's go into the second section of our sermon, verses 3 through 6, where we look at the blessedness of our relationship to God in the kingdom of heaven, the blessedness of repentance. And so Jesus begins in verse 3, opening his mouth, teaching, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude identifies who will receive the kingdom of heaven. Who will receive the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, it's not who you think it would be. It's not by those who have much to offer and perhaps can purchase the kingdom. No, blessed are those who cannot purchase the kingdom. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. They are characterized not by their riches and by their plenty, but by their poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit who have nothing to offer. Now, why would that be blessed? Externally, by all outward appearances, that doesn't appear to be blessed. And yet this is where it's so important to remember what Jesus has already said, that snapshot summary we saw of Jesus' teaching ministry uh, back in chapter 4, verse 17. We saw the snapshot summary of Jesus' teaching ministry where we saw, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The poor in spirit are those who look at their spiritual condition and they recognize poverty in their spiritual condition. They don't have anything to offer to God, anything to give to God, anything that they might barter with God or prove to God, see, I'm actually on my way, let me into your kingdom. These are people who recognize that they have nothing to offer, nothing to give, nothing to their name that stands to their credit, and they can only look to God and plead for his grace and mercy. And Jesus says, blessed are such people. Blessed are such people, because that's the mindset, that's the heart, that's the characteristic of the one for whom is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus fills this out in the next beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. This beatitude identifies how we will receive the kingdom of heaven. First, who will receive the kingdom of heaven, and second, how we will receive the kingdom of heaven it's through a posture of mourning now mourning certainly comes and goes in normal common life as we interact with death as we interact with very difficult things in our life we mourn for a variety of circumstances but again we saw that snapshot summary and now we're seeing the expansion of the teaching jesus is talking about a heart that is characterized by spiritual mourning in repentance for our sins we've talked about the fact that repentance is a change of mind i think differently about my sin. But it's not just a, uh, a token appreciation of something different. Oh, yeah, I guess I think differently about that now. It's a change of mind that stems from a change of heart. It is not just to judge that I am guilty, where I previously thought I was just fined. It is to hate the filthiness and odiousness of my sin in the sight of God, to recognize some of the damage that I've inflicted by the ramifications of my sin. It's to turn in horror for my sin. Again, once again, looking to God, I have nothing. I'm poor spiritually. And to look for God for grace. And this is characterized by a lifetime of mourning repentance over our sin. On October 31st, in the year 1517, which is widely regarded as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, a monk named Martin Luther uh, hammered to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, 95 theses, things he wanted uh, to identify and talk with with the Roman Catholic Church about that spurred on the, the Protestant Reformation, where the church was called back to biblical preaching and teaching. And the very first of those theses, and again, this is what set the terms and set the tone of the entire Protestant Reformation was this. He's talking about something that's very close to what we're looking at this morning. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, and there he cites Matthew 4, verse 17, that snapshot summary of Jesus' preaching. When our Lord and Master Jesus said, Repent, what did he mean by that? He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted, not by external physical comforts, by the gospel of jesus christ that comforts us in the poverty of our spirits in our sin and lostness he comforts us by the gospel that saves us third jesus says blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth if we saw who will receive the kingdom and how we receive the kingdom this beatitude gets at how we will not receive the kingdom it's the meek who inherit the kingdom, not the aggressive who grasp and take for themselves whatever they want. It's the meek who are dependent upon God to give them what we need and the right time. The meek, not those who are weak, but those who have strength that they decline to use and exercise to enrich themselves. That was the uh, confession of sin. What would we be willing to do to get ahead? That's the opposite of the mindset of meekness. It's the meek, though, who will inherit the earth. We will not receive the kingdom of heaven by grasping and taking for ourselves. The fourth beatitude is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This beatitude teaches us how, then, we should live in the kingdom of heaven in relationship to God. We must hunger and thirst after righteousness. But what does that mean? Well, Jesus is unfolding, something that we see uh, explained maybe in clearer ways in the rest of the Bible. But the righteousness of God that we are called to follow after has two aspects of it. One is the recognition, as we saw in the first three Beatitudes here, is that we fall so far short. We aren't rich in spirit, we are poor in spirit. We can't look with pride at our lives, we mourn. We can't be those who grasp and take what we deserve. We have to be the meek, Jesus says. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who first of all realize that we don't have it. And for that reason, look to God and look to Jesus Christ to ask to receive his righteousness that he gives by grace and through faith. Blessed are those who receive righteousness by faith and through grace from Jesus Christ himself. But it isn't only that. It's not less than that. But the Bible then says, for those who have been counted righteous, not by anything that we have done, but by what God has made us in Christ, for those who have been counted righteous, this beatitude also tells us that we need to walk in the paths of righteousness. That we need to live according to the ethic of the kingdom of heaven that God is calling us to in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, in this Sermon on the Mount. To summarize this whole first section, then, um, I heard a very wise man uh, once observe that when we get to stories, the way you can identify and distinguish the villains from the hero is that the villains never repent. Heroes repent, but villains never repent. And I thought that was a very wise observation. It makes sense of a lot of different stories. You see villains, and uh, they make these terrible mistakes, but eventually they just cling and stick to their guns until they eventually go astray. That's why they're villains. But the heroes may make many mistakes, even some of the same kinds of mistakes as the villains, but what distinguishes them is at the end they repent. They turn from their foolishness and their sin, and they go a different direction. Now that helps us as we read stories. That helps us to understand what's going on in a particular story, to judge one character one way and one character another way. But then I thought another step beyond that, and I thought how hard that is in my own heart, in my own life. It's actually quite easy for me to tell you if you're not being repentant. It's quite a different thing for me to say, am I being repentant? Am I willing to acknowledge when I'm in the wrong? Am I willing to say, this was wrong, and I need to go a different direction? Please forgive me. But Jesus says there's no other way into the kingdom of heaven. We've got to let go of the shiny thing, which is our reputation and our pride and our identity, and let go of that. And in repentance, turn to Jesus. But what Jesus tells us in the next part of this is that's not just something we do and then move on from. What this repentance leads to is a kind of resemblance, a resemblance to God. Not necessarily physical resemblance, but a spiritual resemblance. And this gets back at our big idea that blessed are the repentant who resemble God. So in this third and final section, the the second section of the Beatitudes, the second half, let's look at third, the blessedness of resemblance. Jesus says in verse 7, the fifth beatitude, the first in this series, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This beatitude identifies the, the key, principal manner in which we resemble God. If we have received mercy from a merciful God, the way that that will play itself out is that we will resemble God in the mercy that we show toward others. And listen to the promise here. So I am merciful, theoretically, because I have received mercy from God. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive more mercy. I receive mercy from God, which makes me merciful. And in light of that, as a consequence of that, as the blessedness of that, I receive more mercy. Mercy on top of mercy. Grace on top of grace. But there's a corresponding warning with this. as we'll read through the rest of the book of Matthew. Jesus warns us a little bit a shot is fired across the bow a little bit later in Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 when we receive the Lord's prayer when Jesus teaches us to pray forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors boy, what happens if we don't forgive our debtors? What if I don't want to forgive those who have sinned against me? Well, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of the unforgiving servant, a servant who owed a great deal of money to his master, and the master mercifully forgave his servant. But then the servant went out and tried to insist upon exacting a much smaller debt from a fellow servant. And the master, when he heard this, was furious And he called back this servant, and he canceled the cancellation of the debt. He reinstituted the debt, and he threw this servant into prison and says, you will not get out until you pay every last penny. And Jesus turns to those listening to him and says, so shall my heavenly Father do to every one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. There's a warning here. There's a promise, a gospel promise. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But there is a corresponding warning, as we'll see. Second, we see Jesus in verse 8 saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now you might say, well, hold on, Jacob. I thought you said this section was about our relationship to other people. This is blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is about our relationship to God. Well, to tease you a little bit on this, let me say, come back tonight. We have a prayer service tonight. I'm going to be preaching on this beatitude, and I'll answer some of those questions, Lord willing. But to give you a taste of what Jesus is getting at here, if you look at the rest of the Bible... Seeing God is the primary engine by which we come to resemble God those of us who see God uh, who are beholding the glory of Christ are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another 2nd Corinthians 3 verse 18 and one day someday when Jesus comes 1st John 3 verse 2 says that when we see him we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is Seeing God is the engine of resemblance to God that other people see. Well, then in verse 9, in the third beatitude in this sequence, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This peacemaking is the key fruit by which others recognize our resemblance to God. Peacemakers are called the sons of God. Why are they called the sons of God? Because other people recognize the resemblance to God. God is the ultimate peacemaker. God is the one who, for whom the Father sent the Son into the world to make peace with us and so that we might make peace with one another. At Jesus' birth, this was heralded by the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God makes peace. And those who make peace in this world are recognized and called to be the sons of god and then finally in verse 10 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven this beatitude confirms the world's or identifies the world's response that confirms our resemblance to god because if we resemble god and the world hates God, then the world will treat us in the way that the world treats God, which is by hating us. That's the persecution. If you've grown to resemble God, then the world will treat you in the way the world treats God. But if that happens, what Jesus is saying, and this is the gospel promise, understand, that is a confirmation that your life has been marked by repentance and your life has been marked by resemblance to God. For yours, Jesus says, is the kingdom of heaven. That's a confirmation that you possess the kingdom of heaven. And thus, Jesus says, blessed are the repentant who resemble God. How do we apply this? Jesus has said both requirements and he has given us gospel promises. Well, let me skip ahead and let Jesus interpret his own sermon. Skip a little bit ahead to the end of chapter 5, where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Remember, Jesus is the new Moses who is teaching a new law to his people. He's giving us true wisdom, a way for living life in the kingdom of heaven. And understand he is about to exposit and interpret the Ten Commandments in verses 17 and following. This is where he's going. He's going to say these Ten Commandments, they still apply. And in fact, if you thought they were one thing, let me tell you they require even more than that. I say to you, Jesus says, on my own authority, that they mean far more than you think they mean. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is teaching us the law, but notice how he starts. He starts by, in every case, giving us the law. Blessed are such people. And then he sets right alongside the law his gospel. For they will receive this and that and these other blessings of the kingdom of heaven. This is not a formula that you try to work really hard to accomplish so that you can earn something from God. This begins with a fundamental acknowledgement of your spiritual poverty, I can't earn this. And Jesus reminds you, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted by the gospel. We are reading about people who have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute, and yet are blessed, not because they match up to the law, but because of the promises of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is teaching us, and again, this sets the tone for his whole ministry. He's teaching us the right way to relate to God by his law and by his gospel. Now, we see this in two ways. The first way is in what theologians call the first use of the law. The law as a mirror, where the law is held up to our faces. And I hope as you've been reading, you've been thinking, boy, I don't measure up to this. I'm not in heart. I am not always merciful. I am not that persecuted for righteousness sake because sometimes I find it easier to fit in. I have so many bright shiny objects in my life that I'm not ready to let go. The first use of the law is to hold up a mirror to our lives to see just how far short we fall from the glory of God. And Jesus doesn't minimize this. Verse 20 of chapter 5, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as for us, we like to grade on a curve. I want to say, well, as long as I'm better than the next person over, I should be okay, I should be fine. But God grades on absolute terms. If we are not perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect then we are doomed, we are condemned. That the law of Moses thunders against us from Mount Sinai, and Jesus just takes those Ten Commandments and intensifies them, that these go all the way to the depths of our souls. You and I fall so far short of God's infinitely righteous standard. Do you despair over this? But it's in relation to this that Jesus sets his law and then gives us a gospel Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have nothing to offer to God, nothing to barter with, with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not something that you clean up your life to merit Christ. That's an acknowledgement that you can't. You've lived your life in sin, and now you're turning from one thing to turn to Jesus Christ, to embrace from him the righteousness that he offers. to the promises of justification. The Bible talks about justification, that declaration of God that on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, God will not judge you on your own merits, but rather God will credit to you, impute to you is the theological term, the righteousness of Jesus so that when he sees Christ, or when he sees you, he sees his son Jesus Christ. Do you see how far short you fall? Well, then repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Blessed are the repentant. But then the theologians speak about the third use of the law. The second use of the law is about a bridle restraining the wicked in the world. But Jesus, again, is teaching his disciples. This is how we live in the kingdom, not for those who are restrained from all the wickedness they might do in the rest of the world. So we jump from the first use of the law to what theologians call the third use of the law. That as a teacher, the law shows us how to live in this kingdom. Jesus is calling us here to a life that resembles God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We must be merciful as God has shown us mercy. We must be pure in heart as God is pure. We must be peacemakers as God has made peace by the blood of the cross of Jesus. We must so closely resemble God that the world hates us with the fury that the world hates God. Are you perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? No, I'm not either. That is why our entire lives must be characterized by repentance. As Martin Luther wrote in the first of his 95 theses, setting the tone for the Protestant Reformation, we repent, and we repent, and we repent again, and we keep seeing more layers to our sin, and we keep repenting. But the gospel here it is not that God simply forgives us and leaves us in the filth and misery of our sin. There's another gospel word, not of justification, but in addition to that of sanctification, sanctification. Whereas as we repent and turn from our sin and turn to Christ, God promises that he will cause us to resemble him. This isn't something that we work for in our own strength. This is God at work, both to will and to work in us for his good pleasure. It's the gospel of justification that we are counted righteous in Christ. Blessed are the repentant. And the gospel of sanctification, that God will transform us to increasingly be conformed to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. That's the gospel of sanctification. And all of that is something that will carry us through until the day of our glorification. There's more gospel. Gospel on gospel. Grace on grace. The day of our glorification is the day when Jesus Christ returns and raises our bodies from their graves and reunites our souls with glorified bodies. And when that happens, we are told that everything in the kingdom that is still now, not yet, promises we see in part but are still not yet, everything that remains not yet will then be made already. There's a part of the kingdom of heaven that is already here. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus says elsewhere. The kingdom of God is here already, and yet it is not here yet in its fullness. Until the day of our purification, our glorification, when we will cease the pursuit of our purification as He is pure. When we will instead to be made like Him, for he, we will see Him as He is. And on that day, we will feast with God on the mountain of God, in perfect peace. We will all be taught of God. God will be our God, and we will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, nor pain any more, for the former things will have then passed away already. Blessed are all those who enter that kingdom by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and those for whom the Spirit of God is at work conforming us to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Is this you? If not, if you look at this story and you see, I don't see any part I have in this yet, Jesus tells you where to begin. He says, repent. Turn from your sin. It's a change of mind that stems from a change of heart to hate your sin, which flows out into a change of life. If you don't know where to begin, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. By faith. And if you don't have anything to offer him, that's perfect. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Turn to Jesus Christ today and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we grapple with these beatitudes, that you would give us Jesus, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of our Savior, the gospel the light of the gospel in the face of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus, our Lord. And we pray that you would lead us to repent for the first time or the thousandth time to acknowledge once again that we are poor in spirit and have nothing of our own to bring to the table, but are entirely dependent meekly on your grace to receive from you. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, give us the kingdom through your power. In Christ's name we pray.